Our passage this morning is Matthew 7. I'll apologize ahead of time for the, uh, the voice that's bothered by uh, allergies. We are finishing up our Sermon on the Mount series today. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're going. Uh, next week, Matt Wiley will preach. I'll be here. And then the next week, Shane will preach. I also will be here then, but they'll be preaching. And then uh, the Sunday after that, we'll begin a summer series in the, in the Psalms. We'll really focus on praying the Psalms for the summertime. But that said, this is the longest passage out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount that we'll have covered. It's a lot of things, but it really does go together. And what we'll find, we mentioned this last week, is the golden rule, verse 12 of chapter 7, is that hinge. That was really the high point, the, the climax of the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus. Uh, and then these next Verses that we'll look at today really flow out of this as application. So they're kind of, I want you to have in mind four different scenarios, four different sort of proverbial scenarios as we read them. We will, uh, Abby could not be here, so I will, you'll be uh, hearing my voice this morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 27. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, <clears throat> enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we read these words. We come to this time. And quite frankly, maybe many of us are nervous. Uh, very intense language, Jesus. And I pray that as we unpack the truths of the Scripture, that Your Spirit be present. That we would know You better. That we would see Your love and Your mercy and Your truth. In Your name we pray. Amen. Really, the idea here is choices. 
It reminds me of the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's the scene where he's found his way to all of the beautiful, potential, holy grails. There are all the cups, right? They're golden and gorgeous. And there's this knight who's aged, and he basically starts speaking about wisdom and how Indiana Jones has made it and how he's got to make a wise choice and all these things. And the enemy shows up, the bad guy, the blonde, probably Nazi guy with this beautiful woman behind him. And they cross the bridge, and they just walk right by Indiana in the, in the night, and they go over to the cups. And they start looking at him, and the knight looks at them and says, Choose wisely, because if you choose poorly, you will die. But if you choose wisely, you will live forever. And the woman says, Let me choose, and picks the cup for him, and he takes it. And this is the bad guy. He looks at the cup. How many of you, have you seen this movie? Right, this sticks out in my head because I saw it when I was like 12 and it just I think I had nightmares. He dips it into the water, he drinks it, and you're like, what's going to happen? And then he begins to age very quickly, like within about 30 seconds, right? In fact, I think it was one of the first uses of CGI in the movies. From behind, you see his hair getting really long. She starts howling. Ah! And you look at his face and it, any children in the room, we're okay? It's okay. It just starts to get kind of melty and... Uh, Anyway, pretty soon he just collapses to the ground as a skeleton. She quits screaming, and the knight says, "You chose poor, or he chose poorly." Indiana Jones walks over. It's his turn, and he looks at all the cups. And what does he do? He says, "Oh, wait, he's a carpenter." Remember, the Holy Grail is the supposed cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. He thinks it's the wooden one, and he takes it and he dips it in the water and he drinks. And the knight says, "You chose wisely." Of course, Indiana Jones did die later. There's apparently another part of the whole myth. But it brings up the idea of choice and the importance of choice. And quite frankly, when you think about that guy that chose so quickly in the suddenness of death, that really is what our death probably looks like from a distance, isn't it? It's sudden. And yet we think we're making all these wise choices, and oftentimes we're choosing destruction. And Jesus is calling us to be very cautious about the choices we make. But there's really a central choice he's talking about, and that's going to be the theme of our discussion, that as Christians, we are to choose Jesus. And it's not just your choice at salvation that we become a Christian, but it's in everything we do, that when we walk with Jesus, the road is paved for us. He paves the way for us. Whereas when we choose without Him, that is where we find the destruction. And that's what we're going to unpack through these four scenarios. We will be going to the Scripture a whole lot. So if you have it on your electronic device or if you've memorized it or actually have one of these archaic things we call Bibles, please follow along with me. And we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the scenarios somewhat quickly. We're going to unpack this idea of choice. Is it four different choices or is there this one consistent choice we're to make? That's the second thing we'll do. Then finally, the process of making that choice. So, the scenarios. The first one is the gates, the two ways, right? There are two gates. And he says there's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate, right? The wide gate, it's a wide path. The narrow gate has a difficult path. In fact, the word for that path of, of being hard or difficult, actually one of the possible translations could be snake-ridden. I know there are people in our own congregation who are afraid of snakes. And uh, Indiana Jones himself often found himself 
on paths with snakes and scorpions and all that. So that's kind of what Jesus is contrasting, isn't he? And then he says also the wide gate that's easy, with the path that's easy, leads to destruction. But the narrow one leads to life. And, and finally, the other bit to this is the wide one, easy path, leads to destruction. Many will choose that one. And the narrow one, few will find or few will choose. Here's the point before we move on from these scenarios, is you don't have either, it's either or. You're going, we're going to go through one of these gates. Whether one time or continually, there isn't a neutral. Like, I don't even want to mess with the gate system. You have to go through the gate. Okay, teaching, two teachings. He says, beware of the false prophets. And what he says is, they'll be known. This is the key. I've read that so many times and thought, okay, I'll watch out for bad teaching. The problem is you won't know it. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. How do you know the teaching? How do you know if it's correct or not? We're going to go through that and unpack it later, but again, you'll know it by the fruit. So you have good fruit, good teaching, bad fruit, bad teaching. We'll unpack that as we go. Thirdly, there's two tickets to heaven, right? Verse 21, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're talking about entering heaven. How do you do it? What's the ticket? He says, well, it's not just saying, Lord, Lord. It's whoever does the will of my Father. That's the third scenario. We'll unpack that further as we go. And then finally, the two foundations. This is probably the most famous of the four scenarios. The wise man built his house upon a rock. You want to sing that next week? You could have sung it this week. Well, I remember once hearing a story of this house that was in the in a sand dune area that years later stood like 30 feet up because that man built it on the on the right foundation. Have you all, has anyone ever heard a story like that? Probably a poster in somebody's office. Uh, that's sort of what's going on there. We'll unpack that. As you, so what we have now are these four scenarios. And what you find is that the typical interpretation is something like maybe what you would hear at a youth group, like basically saying, look kids, and this is the youth, maybe I should talk to the college kids, so we have so few of you here, but you know, the typical discussion at a youth group is choose the narrow gate, right? Choose Jesus, don't choose crazy stuff. Don't choose licentious living. Don't go out and choose rated R movies and, and, and drugs and alcohol and all this bad stuff. And, and again, a lot of that is very good. And I think we superimpose that on this passage, right? Jesus is saying, now that I've told you all of this stuff, you need to be careful that you're not choosing licentiousness. What that word means is freedom to do whatever you want. You need to choose religion. You need to choose the way of difficulty. That would be a typical, easy interpretation. And I want to sort of challenge that a little bit. I don't want to lose the fact that Christianity is difficult, because it is, but I want to challenge what the choices are. And so what we'll look at is we're going to go dig a little deeper and see what he's really getting at. Remember last week we talked about the golden rule. And it ends with this crazy phrase. He says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. When Jesus says that, he doesn't say that a whole bunch. When he mentions the law and the prophets and fulfilling them, it should ring a bell. For us, the bell would be remembering back to chapter 5. Jesus went through the Beatitudes. He talked about salt and light. And then he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. So for Jesus, 
He didn't just come to get a bunch of people to do good things. He came to do something. He came to fulfill the law, right? And then, once he fulfills that law, for those that are found in him, they have his nature, his spirit, and we have a hope of growth in in fulfilling the law in Christ. So Jesus is now saying, as we come to the very end of the sermon, this is the law of the prophets, and then he gives these scenarios. One other thing I want to remind us of as we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, in any part of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. So it's wise and good to look for other passages that explain a passage. And Jesus kind of went through, this is my own construction, this isn't necessarily a theologian said this, but I think he kind of goes through three three phases in his teaching. He gives you, early on, he doesn't tell you a whole lot, his disciples, he just kind of tells them the basics. A little bit later, he begins to just expose the truth and say, hey, I'm going to die. And then they kind of like ignored him completely. And then the third phase is when he looks back and says, remember when I said I was going to die? And then they go, ah, yes. That's like the road to Emmaus in the book of Acts. Well, right here, he didn't quite come out and say all the details because he knew later the details would be exposed. And so I want to walk through each of these scenarios with that in mind, that Jesus is the choice he's talking about. Jesus is the choice. The two, all, all these two scenarios, scenarios of two things, it's choosing Jesus. That's the premise we're making. So, the gates. Remember the rich young ruler, Luke 18. Shows up and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven, to get eternal life? And what does Jesus say? You've got to be perfect. The guy says, I am perfect. Great. Sell everything. Give the money to the poor. Come with me. The guy says, I'm not doing that. Walks away sad. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, it is very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Oh no, he's talking bad about riches, which he is. But then he says, in fact, it's impossible for any man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But with God, it is possible. Okay, right there you see Jesus is alluding to the fact that it is impossible to enter on your own effort. right? In the book of John, chapter 9, he says, I am the door. I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus is saying elsewhere many times over, I'm the narrow way. I'm the path. So keep that in mind as we move forward. But Jesus is the choice we're making. Secondly, the two teachings. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Are these the people like the media... Um, or you know the, the maybe the rock bands out there that are just taking our kids and making them crazy like the Beatles, um, or is Jesus talking about religious people? Well, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember what he does: he takes things like you've heard it said, "Do not murder." And I say, don't be angry. He's exposing the law. You've heard it said, don't have an affair. I'm saying, don't even lust. Right? Don't make oaths. He's, he's taking this idea of religiosity and he's exploding it. It'd be, again, going back to our youth group scenario. It'd be like having uh, the guy come in and talking to the, the parents or listening in and the, he's talking to the students and they're hoping that their kids will become good Christians, which we want to be. And he says, you know, Timothy, Timothy couldn't even be here this weekend because he's serving the poor and he's the greatest and he memorizes this and he did that. 
And he's amazing. Well, you've got to be better than him. And the parents are going, what? We just want him to not like get into really bad trouble and own a gun. You know, we don't, what are you doing? Well, Jesus is constantly saying, there's something else that we're missing. There's something different. And so the teaching has to produce a fruit. The, the, the kind of teaching we follow, the kind of this scenario has to be more than just right living, because right living can lead to death. Legalism often leads to horrible fruit. And that was his point all through the sermon. Third one, I never knew you. Where is Jesus in this one, right? Lord, Lord. You know, someone says, Lord, Lord. He says, you didn't do the will of my Father. Who can do the will of the Father? Who can possibly do that? And what he does in that little section, verse 21 to 23, is he gives a second statement. It's a very similar to the proverb. They're, they're synonymous, but they, he expounds on his point. If you'll look at verse 22, he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, showing that he's repeating the phrase from the first one, verse 21. And then he expounds on that. Did we not prophesy, cast out demons, and do many mighty works in your name? Now, isn't that, he didn't say, they're, they're, he's, he's talking about people who clearly think they've done great things. What does he say? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. This intimacy, this knowledge of Jesus, this real relationship. And I'll tell you the most fascinating thing in, the, in my mind right there. You work, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are the people that are casting out the demons. They're, they're doing mighty works. But for Jesus, the law is this. It's done with your heart, not just your body. Not just the outward, but the inward. Right? And for Him, the law cannot even be approached unless you have an intimate knowledge of Jesus. Unless you have an intimacy with Him. Union with Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Right? And now, how do we fulfill the law and the prophets? Not by going out and imitating Jesus, but by being found in Jesus. Right? So the fourth scenario. Build your house on the rock. This is the one where, again, I use that, that illustration and I sort of led you astray on it. But I read this passage and thought, okay, if you build a house on the greatest rock and winds come and floods come, did we see the videos from the last few weeks? Those houses don't do so well. Well, but there was a really good foundation. It's gone. What does that mean? Well, I'm not trying to, I'm not saying Jesus is wrong. Uh, I would lose my job really quickly. But as you unpack it, it does say founded on the rock. But the actual Greek there for rock is not just this idea of like a stone structure, but an entire rocky place. It's, it's, the, the sand isn't just the desert. It's a place where there's water and floods and wind. It's more likely that someone is saying, I want to build my house where it's beautiful and I have a good view. And the other person is saying, I want to build my house in that area that's a rock and it's protected. Much stronger than anything I can produce. In fact, another possible term would be for that word rock would be tomb. I'm not going to, I was tempted to think, I mean, Jesus was in a tomb. Well, I'm not going there, but still, the enclosure, the idea is an enclosed, safe place. Of course, we know of Moses, who wanted to see God. And how did God protect him? He hid him in a cleft of a rock. 
of which we get the song, or the singing, the song, the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. When you read these passages, when you read these scenarios, when you think of Christianity, are you thinking, I need to go do? I need to change? I need to do that better? Or are you thinking, I need to run to Jesus? I need to be found in Him. Hiding in Him. That is where I think He is going. And that's the choice I think He's talking about. And, and this, an illustration of this, another movie, is The Matrix. I think uh, that movie was probably used as an illustration every Sunday after it came out for probably six years. But it's been long enough now, I think I can safely tra- travel back into it. If you're not familiar with the movie The Matrix, uh, I'm barely familiar with it. I've only seen it maybe two or three times. But Neo is played by Keanu Reeves. It's like his one good movie. Um, he, he is a by day a computer programmer, by night a computer hacker. And there's a really good computer hacker named Morpheus. Well, it turns out, Neo finds out, that the reality you and I see isn't real anymore. It maybe used to be, but now the computers have taken over and all human beings are like in some sort of a, a pod and they're being used for their energy and resources. And the computers are feeding those people, you and I, with this false illusionary life. It's all computer programmed. Kind of interesting theory. And Morpheus has figured this out, and they're going to take on the computers, and he's going to get some good hackers and go after it. But first you have to take a pill. There's a blue pill and a red pill. Do you all remember the pill? The red pill, if you take that pill, you'll have no recollection of any of this. You'll go back to being dazed and confused and loving life the way it is, or tolerating it at least. If you take the blue pill, you'll never go back to to being dazed. You'll always be aware of the fact that this is all an illusion. And that these computers are taking over and all that stuff. And it's a difficult choice, but he did choose the blue pill. And in a way, that's what we've done in Christ. When we became Christians, what happened? We took in the blue pill. Not, it's not a complete comparison. This is not an illusion. But I will say this. Our world is living under a delusion every day. I mean, I remember the story of a friend who went to the slums in Africa, in Kenya, and he said he noticed a beautiful mansion. And it was the, the man who was overseeing the slums lived in that mansion. And just the contrast and the clear blindedness. And we do that all the time. We're blind to the brokenness. And then you walk up to an unbeliever and say, how do you handle your sin? And what do they look at? You're crazy. I'm not thinking my sin. Oh, you mean the occasional shortcomings, like I'm not perfect. But the Christian, what do we know? That the enemy is inside of us. That the world itself has not only fallen, but we know our own hearts are constantly tempted and often following the sin pattern of rejecting Jesus. Even as we remain a Christian. And the whole idea is that as Christians, the Bible is clear we have two natures. Right? We have our flesh, the same nature everyone else has. And we have our new nature in Christ. For I am a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, Paul says. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? We have two natures. And my concern for my own sanctification, my own growth, and my concern for yours, is that we often try to do sanctification on our own. We say, good job, Bible, good job, teaching, good job, pastor, and we're going to go out and nothing changes. 
and we wonder what's going on. We don't get the process. Because the process that the Sermon on the Mount is putting before us is not that you're going to wake up every morning and choose the narrow gate or the wide gate, meaning how are you going to do your taxes or how are you going to go shopping or all that stuff. The real question is daily, are you going to choose Jesus? Are you going to live out of Christ or out of self? And I think that's the two choices before us. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. I remember one author I read uh, who said, there's really two choices for God. You or God. And that's the question. Who are you choosing to worship? What we see clearly in this text and in this whole sermon that Jesus is teaching is you can look really, really good and still be a complete enemy of the cross. A complete enemy of Jesus. And it's really not a mystery. We know that we're doing it. And one of the things that happens when we choose self, even if we choose self in a religious sense, is we begin to look good in some ways, but what's missing is the fruit. And Jesus is very clear. There needs to be fruit, right? Now, what happens if I don't see the fruit? Do I panic? Do I run? Do I go screaming? Or, no, what do you do? You go to Jesus. So let's look at the fruit again. He talks about the fruit in verse 15 through 20. And I want to remind you of the book of Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is what? Good deeds. Doing your taxes on time. Having no debts. Paying off your house early. Those are great things. What is it you think really matters? What is it you're going to tell those youth kids in that talk? Right? My kids are behaving. You know, I love to hear people describe their children, especially in Christmas letters. It's wonderful. Everybody's perfect. It's amazing. Well, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. Peace. Just take those three words. Just take joy. Are you joyful? You know, let's really be honest. Are we full of joy? Do we feel peace? Do we have patience? Kindness? I think the answer, and I think Paul's a genius, of course. I think the Spirit wrote Galatians. Yes and no. You're never going to have enough peace. Oh, I've got the peace down. You, you want it. You, you value it. But how do you get it? What's the process? And that's what I want to focus on as we close, is this idea of process that I think we have to grasp as we go into the summer, can we understand the process of sanctification by faith? Sanctification by faith is not doing the duty. That's the one negative. We don't want to just go do the duty. But I want to tell you the other negative. We don't want to just say, thanks be to Jesus. I'm good to go. That's also bad. Those are really both forms of legalism. Right? If I just say, I'm a big sinner... Thanks be to Jesus, and then I ignore my sin, I'm just being another legalist. And that will not produce fruit. What would you do? How would you follow through the Sermon on the Mount when you see your sin? What would you do? I think you would, seeing your sin, seeing the brokenness inside of you, you would go back to Jesus. Ask, seek, and knock. Right? There's a plank in the speck. Jesus is saying, guess what, guys? You all have a plank. Every one of you. Remember that. That wasn't just two weeks ago. Two weeks ago I had a plank. Now apparently I don't. You still have your plank. Okay? Ask, seek, and knock. Now, 
the Christian life is asking, it's praying, Holy Spirit, show me my plank. Show me my particular sin. Show me the depths of it. I love that description for narrow is the gate and the way is wrought with, with snakes that leads to what? To life. Sanctification is going down that path with Jesus. You're with Him. You're one. You're together. You're in union. You're a new creation. You're now free to go, I need to go in there. I need to go into the depths of my heart and see the broken places. I want to read you a quote from Walter Marshall who talks about sanctification by faith. He's a Puritan. And I love the way he writes this. He says, The learning of sanctification by faith requires double work. Because first, we must unlearn many of the former deeply rooted notions and become fools. So that now we may become wise. What he is saying is most of us, all of us, let's be honest, our default when we see a problem is fix it. That's our default. Or ignore it. That's really your two things. Ignore or fix. Which one? And I think we try both and we go back in cycles. That's the way of the world. He says we must pray earnestly to the Lord to teach us as well as search the Scriptures. And listen to the Scriptures he, he quotes. Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your laws, and I will keep them. Teach me to do your will. Psalm 143. 2 Thessalonians says, The Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And I love what he says. Surely these saints did not so much want teaching and directions concerning the duties of the law, as much as the means, the help, the way by which to do them. That is sanctification. We're not, when you read, teach me your law, O Lord, it's not like, because I'm not sure if on a red light I stop, on a green light I go, and do I rob or do I not steal? I can't remember. It's, help me to want to do your law. Give me a new heart that I would love you. Is that our view of Jesus? My hope, is that the Gospel, the fact that Jesus loves you, that's the first step. He came to you. He loves you. He embraces you. And now you are free to say, now let's do some work. Here's some bad places, Jesus. Will you help me fix it? That's sanctification. You're exposing your heart to Jesus. It's painful. There may be someone who wants to say, oh, it's much more than that. I assure you, the hardest thing you'll ever do is expose your heart before Jesus. Here's an illustration just to prove the point. Think about the last fight you were in with anybody, a loved one, someone you're close to. And in this scenario, think about the fact that you know you did something wrong in that argument, okay? Does everyone have it? The ones that don't have it, that's a huge plank. Okay. And it may just be a general scenario, I got it. Think about that. Have, remember that first thought you had of, should I apologize? And how amazingly angry that made you feel? That's what we're talking about. Why? Because I don't want to tell anybody I did anything wrong. That will tear down the illusion I have of myself that I'm a good person. Or that at least I'm not as bad as that person. And Jesus says, cheer up. You are bad. You're far worse than you think. Blessed are the Poor. Are you poor? Until we can come and recognize. The Christian is not the one who has it together 
The Christian is the one who says, I don't have it together. I need Jesus. In very specific ways. And then, in light of that praise, Jesus, ask, seek, and knock. Will you come? Here's an area. I, I don't like reading my Bible. Will you change my heart? I don't like that person. They bug me. I never want to talk to them again. Will you change my heart? Help me see why I don't like them. Help me understand the depth of my sin. Lord, I have an anger issue. Will you heal me? Will you show me where that comes from? That begins to be the work of sanctification. And the Scriptures and prayer with the Spirit begin to open our eyes to the ways Jesus can heal us. That's your summer project. And then in the fall, I want everyone to do better. Do you all find any hopefulness in this? I hope so. Jesus loves you, and He loves me, and we are more free than ever to be honest with our brokenness.